0: Welcome to Ghostly.
1: Happy holidays, everybody.
0: Yeah, you had no question?
1: No, no question today.
0: (laughs) Well, because we're actually taking (laughs) the month off, um, but we decided to still share some podcast love with you guys. Yeah, we don't want
1: to leave you, you know, lonely without podcasts to listen to.
0: Absolutely. So we decided we were going to share some of our favorite podcasts. Uh, We're not sure how many, but we're going to share some. Yeah. And uh, this episode is going to be One that you're really going to enjoy, Rebecca, because it's Neil and Steve from Graveside Paranormal. Love them. And they started a new podcast called Paranormal Guys.
1: I love it. Because there's two of them. Paranormal Guys. I like it.
0: And uh, yeah, so this one is about the Amityville Horror House.
1: Ooh, one of my favorites.
0: Which was totally debunked.
1: Not at all. Well, we're
0: we're gonna hear what they have to say about Absolutely. it.
1: Absolutely, and you know you've heard Neil before for sure on um, the Country House episode. Yeah, the Roth House. Yeah, uh, episode. I feel like there's another one in there.
0: And he's done a ghostly X with us. He's as well. done
1: ghostly X with us. He's also was on some of our during the talking pandemic. We did our yeah. talking paranormally. So he's an amazing guy. Uh, paranormal investigator, tour guide. Just general guy. Just guy. You can leave
0: it at that. And Steve is amazing. He is, um, he's like the technician behind everything. He is the mastermind of all of these devices, like the Adahata box.
1: Yes. Which is like the creepiest spirit box you've ever heard.
0: <laughs> which was recently just featured on Bob After Dark.
1: It was And here's the thing, about the cool thing about this podcast is, so Steve, like you said, he's like the tech guy. He's kind of the behind the scenes guy. Well, now he gets a chance to kind of come up front and share his thoughts and what he's seen and very exciting.
0: Yeah. So uh, if you like it, please go ahead and subscribe to their podcast. It's Paranormal Guy. You can find it at any place except Apple at this moment, but we're hoping to get them on Apple soon.
1: Sounds good. Enjoy.
0: Hey, Bob, thank you so much for coming. Rebecca finally figured out what we did wrong when we were conjuring Bloody Mary. We weren't clean enough. Did you get that Manscaped package I sent you? Hey, man. Yeah, you know, I did. I opened it up, and there was a few things in there that were really cool. One, I got the Weed Whacker.
2: I got the lawnmower 4.0, you know, to keep the lady and Wyatt a little happy. You know what
0: I'm saying? Did you get all the lotions? I did, for those unexpected, like, microclimates that make you feel real, like, unclean, unfresh. Awesome. I sent it to Nick, too. I think he's running late. But here's a pat fact for you while we wait, is that they also make boxers. Hey, Mothman. Hey, Pat. Oh, man. Speak of boxers. Why are you just in your boxers?
1: What?
2: Why? Because of Manscaped. Unwanted hair is nothing but a specter left in my
3: life.
1: Looking for something for yourself or for a man in your life? Visit Manscaped.com and use the coupon code GHOSTLY for up to 20% off.
4: Guys are on a quest to find the answers to the hard
1: questions of where the normal meets the paranormal and the weird and where the natural meets the unnatural. So grab your holy water, call your
4: mama, and get ready for the Paranormal Guys Podcast.
2: Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Paranormal Guys Podcast today's date is ten 2 twenty twenty two this will be coming out in November we you better grab your holy water for this one you're gonna need it you're gonna need it and uh and grab you your mama call, too you better call your mama yeah call her don't grab her <laughs> don't don't' don't, no. don't grab your mama no Mm-mm. just call her uh so we're gonna be talking about amityville we and our past um Podcast uh, Spirits by the Graveside. We talked with Paul Garrett Proctor on two times uh, for two of the books that he had out uh, Amityville Pure Observation and uh, another book that he had, uh, which I'll get to in a little bit. He gave us a really good background on the whole Amityville horror, and we're going to be reaching out to Miss Laura DeDidio today for a very, very exclusive interview for you, our uh, listeners, and I'm really, really excited about this one, Steve. I mean, I was talking to her on the phone, and she had my ear for like over an hour, and I had to let her go because I had to uh, go back to doing some work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm going to tell you, uh, she has a lot of information and what we're going to try to do today on this one of this Amityville one is we're going to try to get to all the main questions that a lot of people have out there want to have answers to. Uh, we're going to start out with, I'm going to speak about like the origin and this and that, which majority after like 48 years, majority after seeing movies and stuff like that, I think everybody's kind of got it. Uh, So, we're going to try to get in depth with the main questions because there's a lot of people out there. So, I want to also uh, let everybody know everybody's open to their opinion about everything. Anything from the warrants to the photos uh, to Mm -hmm. the day that it happened to the Lutzes to the DeFeo's. So, understand something. My opinion of certain things may not be the same opinion, or Steve's opinion may not be the same as yours. Mm -hmm. But in the end, we all like the whole story of Amityville. That's the main point to this, and we're trying to get it out there. You can listen to our side, Laura's side, Paul's side, Steve's side, and at the end, you make that observation for yourself of um, of what you think about Amityville.
5: And feel free to leave comments in the uh, comment section below uh, yeah. what you think and let us know um, if you agree or maybe you disagree with something we say tonight.
2: Yeah. That's the whole point to these things Steve is uh you know to, uh, you know talk about it even after forty eight years people are still I, I believe it's over forty eight years mm-hmm. uh that uh that this happened this occurrence with the defeo family the tragic murders uh happened uh it, it's still something that's well spoken today um Paul Garrett uh proctor who's going to be on he is mm-hmm. the uh A guy who has a Facebook page, and there's a lot of people out there, and they all give their opinions and this Mm -hmm. and that. And so it's still, uh, you know, people still talk about it to this day. It's an amazing story. And like I said, we'll get into it. But let's talk about us for a minute, Steve. Yeah, let's let's talk talk about about us. Did you see I'm wearing my uh, Bears jersey? Yeah. What is that number, 29? 29. Well, his name was Tariq Cohen. He's not a running back anymore for the Chicago Bears. Okay. He was a running back for the Chicago Bears. Um. He got hurt, and uh, so he's not uh, playing anymore. But I got this really cool jersey. I believe my son got me this jersey, which was really, really cool of him. Um, but I'm excited about football season. The Bears were on today. Uh, they did not win, which I really didn't expect them to. Was assume. that
5: like the first game of the season or a preseason game? I don't know a lot about no, it's, this is like
3: the
2: third or fourth uh, game of the season. They were oh. first in the Giants, and they lost. Oh, okay. Um, so they've been losing. No, no, no. Actually, they're 2-2 two and two right now, I believe. Oh. I believe they're 2-2. Two and two. Yeah, All so right. it's the fourth game of the season. Okay. It's amazing how quickly these things go by. How do you what, think they're going to do this year? Uh, I would say at least a 500 team. They're, they're going through a transition period, mm. you know. But uh, this isn't a sports broadcast uh, station. No. This is Paranormal Guys podcast. That's right. Uh, how's everything else going?
5: Good. How about you?
2: Oh, it was great! Yeah, uh, my daughter just got married. Yeah, like, you know, you were there last
5: week. That was a good. That was uh, a great wedding, man.
2: Yeah, we had a lot of fun. You know, congratulations to my uh, daughter and her new husband. Uh, you know, it's, Nick. Man, he was. <laughs> it, it, it was a long day, man. I was so tired. I, it lasted at least two, three days, so I started feeling normal again. Yeah, you I mean, uh, know, well, you
5: were but, out to like two in the morning, weren't you?
2: I, well, I was out because I had to watch over them because they were doing a lot of drinking, this and that. So I had to drive them home. So I drove mm-hmm. everybody home and uh you know everybody had a great time. It was just an awesome time. Uh, it was just great, man. And then now we're uh like I said, it's uh, uh October 2nd today. Uh this upcoming Saturday, Steve, we have going into our ghost tours, dude.
5: Yeah, we got our first ghost tour yeah, of the so 2022.
2: We record at least two episodes ahead. Uh, yeah. We're going into our ghost tours uh, that we do in the Chicagoland area. It's going to be a lot of fun. We've been selling a lot of tickets, Steve. Oh, so yeah, a lot of tickets. I we do a good
5: know. show. I mean, I don't want to pat myself on the back. Uh, it sounds like you know narcissistic or anything, but you know, you and I put a lot of work into this. Um, we do a great, we do a great show, and people they leave great reviews. Um, it's fun. We even see people return. You know,
2: oh, yeah, people love the show, and we got a new thing on this year, uh, where we're gonna be able to go into this one, uh, cemetery called St. James Cemetery, otherwise known mm-hmm. as Monk's Castle. Yeah, we're gonna be able to go in there and they're gonna really enjoy themselves because no one's been able to go in there ever at night, right? I mean, we were, Father to Tom. huh? Thanks, Father Tom. Yeah, Father Tom, man, I, I gotta get out there and uh, thank him, uh, you know, get him uh, something to eat, you know, oh, like yeah, a pumpkin pie or something, something good, something good. He looks like he's an eater, so. <laughs> so but other than that though you know people have a great time you know we get uh some good reviews every now and then we get a you know different kind of review but that's all fine and good mm-hmm. uh, we definitely have more good than bad i'll tell you that oh yeah but you want know what's so cool about it is is a lot of people we get so many photos right from uh from a lot of our uh uh People who come out on our stores, our customers. I'm sorry. Yeah. Who come out there? Like take for instance the tragic innocent story we did. I'm not lying to you, ladies and gentlemen. We had this picture of this. Hopefully Steve can probably pop it in here somewhat time later. Is that uh we have a picture of the nun. And mm-hmm. this nun was not anywhere to be seen. And you wonder know what's odd, she looks like that nun from the Conjuring. Yeah. You're right. I, I, it was it was weird, and I understand these are from the customers. And it's the, the minute that they take them, they come right up to us. So there's no delay or anything like that. We're like, they all of a sudden uh, go, uh, uh, "This is two, three, yeah, there, there it is." Now, <laughs> this picture here, we were doing a thing about the Grimes sisters. Uh, it's right. a tragic murder it happened in 1956 in the Chicagoland area, and people are taking random photos. And this photo came up this person was not in that cemetery. No, there is no that nun. Face. That face is gray. There is no color to that face and, but see like talking about color look how white the above part is that's part of the nun, uh, nun's habit I think that's what it's called. Mm-hmm. And um you can see that the white shirt with the it's like the the uniform that a nun would wear back a long time ago. Mm-hmm. That that was weird, man. And we get lots of photos of people who uh, give us uh, things from when we go to the back end of Bachelor's Grove. We start getting pictures in the windows of people's faces right. and stuff like that. So we, and we also were on uh, MSN News uh, for the first per- uh, group that ever got the uh, picture of uh, the weeping lady, possibly right. the weeping lady of Archerwood Cemetery,
5: which we so, take people to. We take yeah, them which, to which take the Cemetery.
0: Them. Yeah, so we have wow. a lot
2: of fun. Mm-hmm. So. Other than that, I, everything else is going good, and then we're, I'm excited. I'm I truly excited this year. Uh, I cannot wait to get back into the rhythm. That's the thing is getting back in the rhythm and telling people stories. It's so important to uh, get into the rhythm of telling people stories. You know, right? Um, so, all right, let's. You ready for the news today, Steve?
5: Uh, yeah, I'm ready for the news. But are you? Oh, I'm always ready, Steve. I'm let's ready. do it.
0: All right.
2: Now for the paranormal guys, weird news. Mm -hmm. A truly strange video circulating online shows a flute-wielding musician in upstate New York serenading a rather sizable group of raccoons. The bizarre scene reportedly took place at Brasher State Forest last week. And the man behind the music, who has since earned the nickname, the Pied Piper of raccoons, is named Eddie Lawrence. Uh, Let's uh, look at that video, Steve.
5: Here we go. (laughs) you <laughs> a lot of raccoons
2: that you know those are some fat raccoons which means he's giving them some really good food man
5: i mean they're not getting fat on the music no like i think he's he's feeding them isn't he
2: oh yeah he's he's definitely feeding them say for instance uh that one guy that you talk about all the time yeah um, james blackwood james blackwood uh he's the one who always um feeds those hot dogs to those darn out raccoons, doesn't
5: he? Yeah, he does. As he matter fact, a matter of fact, let he? me see if I got something here. Um, yeah, James is like one of my favorite YouTubers. Um, and I found him when they did COVID, right? When they did COVID. When when the restrictions were uh, put on us and we had nothing to do. We couldn't go right. anywhere. And um, and so for the people who don't know who James Blackwood, I got a little video clip here on share. Give me a sec here.
0: Okay, it's 10 to 7.
5: That's all the raccoons outside his
0: well. And door. i got a bucket of grapes. I'm going to throw that whole bucket out because I can't get out.
5: Look at that. It's He's like the zombie apocalypse. apocalypse. <laughs> That's
2: so, crazy, man.
5: Right? He can't fun, even get now. out. Here,
2: here, 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 here. Come
5: Look on. At that. They're grabbing him. On. What's they're they're him? him.
2: They're pulling him out.
5: Right. And then here he is like
6: Really, really super dogs. hungry because of the cold.
5: Look it's how fat minus six
6: here right now, Celsius. Look at
5: that, right up so on below them. Below freezing. Give me that.
3: Hello, <laughs> this. Hello. There that. we
5: go. Uh, so they uh, and it's, it's we're going to be have a big snow again tonight. Hello. So he he has no um no flute, just hot dogs and grapes.
2: That's an amazing video, man. Uh, that that that's that's unbelievable.
5: Do you think we should be doing something like that instead of paranormal guys? Like maybe we should just ditch this, go get some hot dogs at Walmart and then go sit out inside and feed,
2: oh, maybe birds. I I if those raccoons bite, yeah. won't you get uh your rabies or something?
5: You know, sometimes people ask him, they go, there or they say you're going to get rabies," you know, and he gets really mad. It's kind of fun. He's like, "They don't have rabies," you know. <laughs> um but yeah, I guess he's been nicked a couple times.
2: I'm sure he has. Oh,
5: one of my favorite episodes uh, when he's out there, a black bear comes
2: uh-huh. up his
5: porch, and oh, yeah, the I did raccoons just go, and he's like, "Oh no!" And he goes inside, and his camera like catches a black bear getting the hot dogs. And once they find, once a black bear finds like food, you know, it's they open. come back. Yeah, and he's probably risking his life. Yeah, by yeah, doing yeah, that. Yeah,
2: yeah. Oh, well. Well, moving on, what do you got for us there, Steve?
5: Well, Neil, Hong Kong needs donkey penises, and Nigerians are all too willing to provide.
2: Donkey penis.
5: Nigerian officials have seized thousands of donkey penises at Lagos Airport. Uh, these donkey penises were actually found in sacks. So sacks of donkey genitals um, were recovered they were told that they were cow penises but they were not they were smuggling these um donkey genitals to hong kong because they wanted them in hong kong i don't understand i don't understand that like
2: they were there but they were they were all in sex
5: they were in sacks. They they covered sixteen sacks. And I tried to do the math, right? They don't say how many thousands, but um they said they there were thousands and they recovered sixteen sacks. So one sack of donkey penises is like, you know, probably several hundred. Wow.
2: Anyway. That, had, that had been a big sack. Put all these donkey penises inside these sacks.
5: Like why Hong Kong? I thought that was like a Tijuana thing.
2: Yeah, good point, man, right? Well, That's he... what I thought, too. At least, you know, back in my 20s, I heard of things like that, you know?
5: I don't know about that stuff. but yeah, like, you I don't know. know. Hmm. The world of trade.
2: Yeah, trading and sex.
5: Trading and sex. Sachs Goldman.
2: Sachs Goldman, right. All right. Well, let's move on to the next weird news. Okay. All right. Skeleton woman, buried with a thin metal sickle, that is a very sharp object, around her neck, possibly to stop her from returning from the dead, has been found. The strange burial was performed because the villagers may have thought that the woman was undead. The sickle was not laid flat but placed on the neck in such a way that if the deceased had tried to get up, most likely the head would have been cut off or injured. The padlock big toe, I guess there was a padlock big toe, was also also possibly symbolized as the closing of a stage of the impossibility of returning. That's weird. And it was in a Polish uh, village uh, uh, from Poland. A padlock
5: on the big toe.
2: Yeah. Who would have thought that
5: would keep you safe? from a vampire and I, I,
2: I never even I've never even heard that uh and I thought I've heard of everything but I've never heard of a padlock I understand the sickle thing I've yeah. heard that but I've never ever heard of um uh, a padlock but what do they have the anything? combination <laughs> what's the combination <laughs> oh I man, don't know. <laughs> that, that is definitely some weird news. I mean, there's that's people just really believing in uh a lot of that old folklore and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, trying to be very traditional, I guess, about uh vampires or the undead. Yeah, weird. That that's
5: why it's called weird news. That's what that's what we do. We only provide folks with the best weird news oh, that we can that's find. Weird news.
2: Speaking of weird news, don't you have a little cool thing I think uh from the patch?
5: Well, yeah, this is interesting. Um, McDonald's, this is in the Chicagoland area. They're they're launching adult Happy Meals um, with an adult meal and an adult toy. No, not an adult toy. Throwback figurines.
2: Not an adult toy, uh, meaning like throwback era adult when it was their lives when they were younger.
5: Toys for them. When toys the, for them. Yeah, not yeah. adult
2: toys, but it's an
5: adult happy meal with a toy in it for adults
2: from that era
5: from that era so it's not an adult toy it's just an adult meal oh and so what are they feeding inside those adult meals like big macs
2: oh so it's not like the regular kids like cheeseburger or small fry or small coke it's an adult happy meal with throwback toys uh from your era right not adult toys.
5: Right. I mean that's it, not where the that's not where the Nigerians were sending um do to you the McDonald's think that in that Hong Kong.
2: Using that also? You know, to hide?
5: <laughs> Maybe.
2: <laughs>
5: <laughs> it, it's like a the a sack, the adult sack. <laughs>
2: you never um, know, you know, a sack of fries, a sack of penises. I think that's all the news. Do we have anything else, Steve?
5: You have a show that you wanted to talk oh, about.
2: That's right. Now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I, on Netflix right now is the Jeffrey Dahmer series. Uh, this guy here, this guy here, I'm going to tell you, this guy is a great character actor. I do apologize for not knowing his name. I've seen him on uh, American Horror Story. And he plays a lot of different characters. If you're going to find somebody to do something like this, this is your guy. And this guy is going to become very, very well famous. Uh, he's going to be a great actor, a uh, well-known actor in the future. I'm telling you, this guy right here. The movie Dahmer or the series Dahmer, I had turned off for a minute, man. I, I ain't going to lie to you. I, it, it bothered me for a minute. It just... It, How is this a series? Uh, it's, it's going, talking about when he was younger. It kind of goes back and forth. It actually starts off with uh, the murder that he was going to do with this one guy, um, and he was able to escape from Dahmer and get the police out there. Hopefully, I'm not giving him too much away. I mean, that's what happened, I'm not right? really giving it away. The reason why is because this is a true story. Anything you read, anyways, you're going to know about. So it starts off with, like, that, and then starts going to his childhood and how he became what he is or was, because uh, he is dead now. Uh, but I'm going to tell you something. This one here is truly disturbing. I, I, don't think I'm, huh? I
5: don't think I'd watch it. It's not something I'd really be into.
2: You know, I like I like watching some of these kinds of movies, but this one here is very disturbing. And I turned it off. I ain't gonna lie to you. It's you know like that natural thing, you know, you see a car accident, you turn away, but you gotta look back. So after I grabbed my little uh water or whatever. I came back and I started watching it again and got disturbed, walked away again. And my son came downstairs. I had to turn it off and I'm like, I can't let him see stuff like that. And my son's 21. Oh, wow! And I still turned it off. Yeah. But, but I, I, you know, if you, if you like um, a good uh, story about like serial killers, a true story about serial killers, this might be up your alley. I, I, I think it was, I'm not finished with it. I don't even know if I'm going to finish it.
5: So are they planning on doing like uh, additional seasons of this.
2: No, no. I think this is a one, one time one. thing. Yeah. I think it's, okay. yeah, it's a, a cut through parts. I think they're all about 50 minutes long or something like that. Right. Yeah. So other than that, I think that's all the news and weird news and movies that we got for today. Uh so next coming up next first we're going to be uh, have a little messages from Graveside Paranormal hey boils and ghouls it's spooky season again and Graveside Paranormal is ready to give you the best tours that we can give you come on out this year starting on October 8th and we have a special tour coming out other than our nightlife tour we have the monks tour which will be on the 22nd the 28th and 29th for the first time ever monks gates is going to be opened up for us and we're going to be able to go in there and tell you all the wonderful scary stories so come on out if you want to have a good time and get a little
4: and now back to the paranormal guys podcast
2: all right we're back now we're going to be talking about amityville 112 ocean avenue in amityville was darkened november 13th at 3 15 a.m in the morning in 1974 by a gruesome mass murder that claimed every family member there except for one round DeFeo junior the 23 year old killer was convicted of fatally shooting his parents and four siblings, and was given six sentences of 25 years to life. It inspired a book-selling, best-selling book. The two films titled The Amityville Horror, November 13, 1974, Amityville, New York. The people that were killed there, Ronald DeFeo Sr., John Matthew DeFeo, Don DeFeo, Allison DeFeo, Luis DeFeo, Mark DeFeo. In December of 1975, George and Kathy Lutz and their three children then moved into the house after the murders. And after 28 days, the Lutzes fled the house, claiming to have terrorized by paranormal phenomenon while living there. Tonight, we are going to talk with Laura and Paul, and we're going to try to get a little bit deeper into the subject of Amityville. Laura DiDio is known for the Channel 5 investigation that she had with Ed and Lorraine Warren and some of the other people that were there that night. She also uh, is for a a documentary called My Amityville Horror that came out in 2012. I recently watched this, and I have to say I really did truly enjoy this. Uh, Dan inside there, Dan Lutz, hopefully we'll get into that a little bit later. I really did enjoy it. She's also been on Shock Docs uh, from 2020 and History's Greatest Mysteries in 2020. And uh, so, Laura, I want to welcome you in. Come on in, Laura. How are Thank you? Thank
4: you. It's it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: I mean, I'm just really, really happy. I know we had a little bit of a problem like we were talking about earlier with, with times. So I do apologize once again for that. But I, I, I was very excited about getting you in here today. I truly am. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Um, and with that, I'd like to bring in Paul Garrett Proctor, as everybody knows, Paul Garrett Proctor, author of two books, Amityville, Gateway of Evil, mm-hmm. and Amityville, Pure Thank you. It's from England. Uh, it's a little bit late for him. What is it, about 10 or 11 o'clock at night? It's
6: uh, 10.45. Sorry about that. <laughs> well, that's cool. I'm a night owl.
2: <laughs> yeah. So I, now you guys have known each other for a while, Correct.
6: We've known each other online, but this is the first time we've had a verbal conversation. Nice, great. And you you know what? Someone like me, this is like talking to Madonna. (laughs) (laughs) So this is big. And I was, I was
2: telling Laura earlier uh, before we went live, is that uh, she's very popular in the paranormal community. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I know she doesn't really, you don't like really like hearing uh, that. I'm assuming, Uh, and uh, but it's true.
4: No, it's no, good. I don't I don't mind it. What I say is that it's a two-edged sword. Mm-hmm. Well, because okay, in it. the past, it you know, my life as an investigative reporter is built entirely on provable facts. Okay? And with as you know, with the supernatural, the paranormal, it it is anything, you know, but factual. You have to have a belief or you have to try and prove it to the best of your ability and if people don't believe in spirits if they don't believe in angels devils and afterlife well then you have no problem because you just say a it's either a hoax or b the people who do believe in it are just uh well intentioned but they're a little loony or misguided
2: or very dramatic
4: yes very dramatic
3: Mm-hmm. And I've
2: come across many people like that before me and Steve are doing the things oh, that yeah. we do. We get phone calls. I get emails from people and I ain't going to lie to you. I meet a lot of nice people in the little journeys that we have. Oh yeah. yeah there we've are even nice who are very yeah. dramatic. And like you said, loony,
4: it just is what it is.
5: Sometimes you get that. Right. Yeah. You have oh, to be yeah. able to filter that out. Um, yeah. But yeah.
4: And then but, uh, you get people who are so, so skeptical that they wouldn't believe in spirits or an afterlife. If a departed soul came up and said boo" to right in the face, right. they would find a scientific explanation for everything or a way to dismiss it. And yeah. nowhere is that are those polarities more in evidence than when it comes to amity bill. Yeah. The, word, the word controversial is very overused, but in this case, 46 years on, 48 years now 48, for like yes. the DeFeo murders, but 46 mm-hmm. years for the quote-unquote Amityville horror, those lines have been drawn, you know, and they are drawn in cement or steel. Nobody right. nobody wants to to budge. Yeah, and, and,
2: just, and like you said, it's going on 48 years. When this is coming out, it's going to be on November 3rd. November 3rd, it's going to be coming out. Uh, and, and the the date for the original uh, the, the the murders that happened is November thirteenth, as you guys know.
6: Yes. So
2: we'll be going on forty eight years, close to that fifty year mark. And Ronald Vale Junior. He died last year, March. I think it was March, wasn't March,
4: it? March twelfth. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And by by the way, what's interesting about that is that we now you you've had third. You're now on third generation, Amityville. Proponents or detractors. But as everyone knows, many of the original protagonists, all of the DeFeos, George and Kathy Lutz, Ed and Lorraine Warren, Hans Holzer, many of these people, uh, you know, Stephen Kaplan, William Weber, all those people who were the first-person witnesses, as well as the police detectives, many of the jurors on the original. DeFeo murder trial case, um, are gone. So at that point, the trail can grow cold and stale. And now when you have younger people who are just coming on to this or people in their 30s and 40s who might not have been alive, they, they pick up facts or snippets of information here and there, and they can conflate them and turn it into a rumor. Right. You know, which is which is, by the way, what we I saw today right on uh, Paul's Facebook page on the the Amityville page. Somebody came in and said, "Hey, I was just reading a book, uh, you know, um, and I was always wondering why the big mystery was why nobody in the neighborhood in Amityville on Ocean Avenue heard any of the shots." But then I saw this. Um, I was listening to a podcast with Donnie Wahlberg. Very crazy people. And he he interviewed somebody or they said that they did hear the shots. Well, first of all, the very crazy, um, very scary people, that's a, docu- that's a documentary series that's been running for three or four years now on my old employer, CNN. Mm-hmm. And when they ran the documentary about the DeFeo murders, which was we filmed that at the end of 2020 and it ran in 2021. Donnie Wahlberg was born in 1969, so he was five years old at the time of the murder. Right, right, right. He, right. Is the, he is the narrator host of that program, so he knows what the script is. He's a very fine actor. I am not criticizing him, but he was not involved in this. However, if they heard Donnie Wahlberg say it,
2: it's gotta be it's gotta be gold. It's gotta
4: be true. But what has happened with Amityville? This is a classic case and i was actually going to go in and say something on the facebook page paul but it, it it takes a while as you know to do that yeah so here's the thing when this became famous or infamous and it blew up now all of a sudden you have people coming out of the woodwork to say yes i heard the shots i heard the shots well you might have heard something but here's here's the thing it is possible that some of the neighbors heard something but did not identify it as shotgun blast because at the time in the 1970s in this beautiful bedroom community on Long Island you didn't have, you know, pop pop pop. Nowadays kids go to school and they hear pop 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 and they, you know, they're they're ducking and running for cover, unfortunately. So it's possible somebody heard something, didn't think anything of it and rolled over in their bed and went back to sleep.
3: Right. But
4: mm-hmm. in factual terms and for practical purposes if nobody if somebody heard the shot and thought it was a shot then why would they not have called nine one one? now what that would have done had you know had they taken the time and trouble to do it if they heard it you would have had the Amityville Police Department rush to the scene sure and they might have they might have been able to catch Ronnie DeFeo Jr. in the act or just in the aftermath the immediate very immediate aftermath and you would have been able to prove once and for all did he have accomplices
3: mm-hmm.
4: by the way nobody believes he did but some of these people are just jumping up saying yeah who I lived on the street I heard the shots but they didn't Again, it gets back to that chicken and egg argument mm. sure. if, a, if a tree falls in the woods and there's nobody there to hear it, does it make a sound? Well, yes, you don't subvert the laws of physics. it may make a sound, but it doesn't make a difference to anything but the blades of grass under that you know the tree falls on sure so it that's the type of thing that happens, and I've seen that even with many of the originals who were there as time went on and you had more and more movies documentaries tv shows and books written about this the facts were taking were taking a real back seat to people's opinions and the stories that they developed around it right I'm sorry. Yep. Go ahead, Marvin Scott, who was the reporter that was there the night of the March sixth seance, uh, who was the on-camera reporter, and I was producing for him that night. He has he has never changed his story. He doesn't think it's haunted, although he felt a slight chill that night during the seance, and that's fine. That's Mar that's Marvin's belief.
3: Uh-huh.
4: Okay, and. The belief that it's not haunted, that theory has been, you know, a lot of people would say, has been reinforced by all the subsequent owners Uh who say publicly anyway, no, it's not, you know, nothing's ever happened to us here. Now, behind the scenes, it's a different story. Some of them tell some of them, you know, tell a different story. And there have been people who've gone in there, a couple of realtors, et cetera, who said, hey, you know, I this is creepy. I want to get out of here. Now, again, that doesn't prove anything one way or another. Because it's possible to go in and spook yourself mm-hmm. if you start. I mean, I, I remember reading um, Anne Rice's book, The Witching Hour, one night alone on a dark and stormy night in my apartment and it's raining and storming and you hear noises. I was, I was getting spooked. I said, okay, time for me to put this up, but it is, it is possible. And with, with Amityville, everything is amplified Mm
3: -hmm. because
4: people feel compelled to say I'm a believer or yes, this happened. So the, the believers will seize on anything To say no, this is this is proof that it happened. Whereas on the other side, the skeptics are doing everything they can to knock it down, and um, Paul knows that very well because he's had to play referee. And you've had a couple of uh, very nice moderators say, throw up their hands in disgust and say, you know, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Paul's talked about that before, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this interview. Most people all know about their history. It's been 48 years, almost going on 50 years. They know the history on November 13th, uh, when 1974, when uh, the murders happened on the DeFeo family, six people got killed uh, horribly. Horrible murders. And you yeah. bring up the point about, uh, you know, the, the truth and the lies and the skepticism. And that's one of the reasons why Paul has uh, his – he moderates that one Facebook page So what I want to do on this one, because we all pretty much know the history and most people who are going to be tuning into this are going to be coming from his Facebook page and people that they know. Who are very interested in the Amityville So I think the most important part is to ask All the real good questions Let's try to get some kind of good answers Going out here You know, from when you did your interview I mean, not the interview, but you did your reporting on that day For Channel 5 News And the research that Paul has done And so what I want to do is I want to start with the DeFeo family As we know, like I said, November 13th At 3.15 in the morning Mm -hmm. uh, Ryan DeFeo Jr. Took a rifle And killed his family Uh, one after another. I believe he did his mother first. Am I right, Paul?
4: No, it was the father first.
2: Father first. You're right. I'm sorry. The father first, then the mother, and then he went from room to room to room. Uh, One of the things uh, that is, and we'll get into it, is the whole laying down and nobody hears the noise like you were talking about. But one of the things I noticed are the questions that is on your uh, page. Uh, One of the things... The thing that he went to Canada to go find an exorcist, is that true, Laura, or Paul? I'll, I'll start with Laura first. Is that true that Ryan DeFeo Sr. went to Canada to find an exorcist and came back with that St. Christopher uh, statues that was laying around because he believed that there was something going on? I know he talked about uh, the devil on his back, uh, which meant his son. But is there anything more to it about that an exorcist came there?
4: Okay, well, first of all, you've had several things, and this is a perfect example of taking several different pieces of information and then putting them all together and conflating them. So, let's start with the truth. What happened was uh, about a year before the actual murders, Ronnie Senior, or Big Ronnie as he was known, was um, had gotten into an argument, again, which was a regular occurrence with Ronnie Jr. or Butch. And in the course of the argument, Butch, Ronnie Jr., pulled a gun on his father at close range and went to shoot him. The, the gun jammed. It did not go off. After which, um, Big Ronnie, Ronnie Sr., the, the dad, thought... Uh, you can just imagine, you know, if somebody's playing a game of roulette and they're click, click, click with the gun and it doesn't go off, uh, you come down from that level of fear thinking, uh, you know, I just dodged a bullet, literally. And he thought, you know, the father thought, wow, it's a miracle. I wasn't killed. Okay. And the DeFeos were, you know, a religious family. And if you go back to the 1970s, in the US, I suspect you know, we were a m- much more religious society in those days in terms of weakness church going and attendance, etc. Uh-huh.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: So they were an Italian family, they were Catholic, so they were practicing Catholics. The three younger children, Allison, Mark, and John, were all attending the local Catholic grammar school Allison had been out of high school and she was going to a uh, secretarial school but they they were truly a religion you know they were a religious family I don't mean that they were holy rollers you know but they attended church and they believed so after this Ronnie senior and the family went up to Canada because they um, Big Ronnie had started a correspondence with a monk up there, you know, an oratory, and was, you know, sending him money, you know, as they will, pray for me, say masses for me, and the whole family went up there on vacation. The short answer is, yes, he went up to Canada to to see the priest, but no, it was not specifically to seek out an exorcist. There is also the story that they had a mass set in the house, which would not have been an unusual thing to do at the time. Okay. And at one point during the trial, or it came up, uh, Ronnie Jr., following the murder, said, Oh, yes, um, a wind came through the house. Even though all the, you know, the windows were shut and the doors were shut and it blew out the candles. Now, consider, when you consider the source, and since none of the principles are still alive, you can't prove or disprove that story. Since presumably only the family was there and the priest and Ronnie, and now they're all dead. So, and of course, Ronnie was very, very self-serving. He changed um, his stories the way the rest of us change our underwear, which right. is to say very frequently. But yes, certainly Ronnie Sr. did feel, oh, wow, I dodged a bullet, literally, which he did. But what's un- what's amazing about this is, and we have this argument that goes on today running, thing: why do you have guns in the home?
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And in fact, Ronnie DeFeo Jr., he was, you know, he was a punk. Yeah. He was an underachiever. The judge in his trial called him antisocial, but to me that doesn't even begin to cover it. And he you know, he essentially was spoiled by his parents. There's a lot there's a lot of talk about how he and his father did come to physical blows several times, you know, in the basement. That the younger brothers witnessed out on the front lawn. They were wrestling around. The neighbors heard it and saw it. But yet he he worked for the his grandfather's Buick dealership, as basically a gopher, because they they couldn't give him any position of real responsibility. And he would come in late, leave early, do whatever he wanted, pick up a paycheck, and yet. His father still gave him a generous allowance. He had a car. He had these guns in the house. Why they allowed him to keep the guns, number one, in the first place, is amazing. But number two, it's absolute insanity that they would allow him to keep his he gave him back the guns even after he tried to shoot his father the first time.
2: Yeah. That's crazy. I, I mean was he's asking near- for it. Yeah, you're just asking for I mean, he really gave in to a lot of his uh, son's uh, wants and needs. It's- yes,
4: and there was a lot of talk about how Ronnie DeFeo Sr. was abusive. Mm-hmm. And there was a story about how he pushed his wife at one point down, yeah, the, down, the, down stairs. the stairs. And there was a lot of that shouting. And if you ever saw um, the TV show... All in the family. I know it was something else. It was All in the Family with uh, Archie, Archie Bunker. He was more like an Archie Bunker type, I think, to the max, if you will. I don't think he was... If you want to make the contention that he was abusive towards Ronnie, he did not spare the rod, but he did spoil the child. But at the same time... And I don't think this point is made often enough. Ronnie DeFeo Jr. was abusive towards his entire family. He got into fights with all of them. He So certainly he was causing a lot of that, that tension. And he was on drugs.
2: So that's why the father would sometimes get angry, just like any father would get angry at his son. I mean, you're causing problems in the house. So yeah, I'm going to yell at you uh but uh they did say that uh there was abuse inside the house uh i don't know if that was any true about him and his wife like you were talking about falling down well that thing
4: about his wife i mean i think you know if you again if you go if you go back in the times it wasn't um thought of the way it is today Mm -hmm. where somebody picks up their hand to strike somebody wow okay Right. It's it's physical, it's physical abuse. So I think he might have pushed and shoved his wife around, but do I think she was a battered woman who was, you know, hidden in the closet? No, it did not rise to that level. Um certainly they probably had ups and downs in their marriage. Right. That may or may not have been more severe than other people's marriages, who knows. Right. Uh but the fact was Ronnie Jr they could have kicked him out of the house. He was 23. And not only that, he was involved, I think what brought things to a head in the house, as far as Ronnie was concerned, Ronnie Jr. was concerned. He was under a lot of pressure. When I say he was a punk, he was, I mean that in the sense, he had grandiose ideas about stealing and doing things. But when it came to trying to actually execute and plot the crimes. He was very sloppy. And he was a bad liar. His excuses and lies were pretty transparent and fell apart. So a couple of weeks before the murders, Ronnie Jr. and another employee of the Briganti Carl Buick dealership were told to make a bank deposit of about $20,000. You know, they had the bag with the money, go in, make the deposit. They came back three hours later and said, we were mugged, we were robbed. The money's all gone. Now, if you or I had done something like that, common sense would tell you, and you see this in every old Western going or the untouchables, lay low for a while. Yeah. Don't, if, if what he did was start spending money all of a sudden like a drunken sailor. He's, he's buying himself a wardrobe. So Ronnie Sr., his father, is witness to all this. And he sees that He's going out and just, you know, like spending money, like literally like a drunken sailor. And he was confronting his son about it. What happened to that money? What happened to that money?
2: So it was definitely a dysfunctional family.
4: Well, what family isn't dysfunctional?
2: True that. I grew up, uh, my mom raised three boys by herself. So she, uh, that was definitely a lot of dysfunction. Not, not horrible dysfunction, but, you know, it is what it is. But um, <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Now, one of the other questions I have, and either Paul or, um, or yourself can uh, answer the question, was the Fail family where they lived, was it actually built on Native uh, burial ground? Paul, I'll other
6: than it, uh, yeah, that, that that just seems to be an ongoing argument, you know, for so long. You know, I mean, there are people who are even very sceptical about any supernatural, paranormal uh, kind of, you know, history to the building. Who who have even come out and said, yeah, there is a, a Native American burial ground. You know, some some people are very staunchly saying no, there isn't. Some are staunchly saying yes, there definitely is. To be honest, I mean Laura may be able to add more to this than I can, you know. But I very often ask this question, you know: Are there really that many parts of America that don't have true? That, right. a Native American, you know, kind of burial grounds underneath okay. there. You know? And and I always think this as well, you know, without digging up that property, how can we really know that 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 is the the big one, really, isn't it?
4: Well, you just answered answered the question, Paul. Now, I am a native New Yorker, and I am from Long Island. And I grew up in Queens, New York, which is part of Long Island. But you don't think of it as Long Island like Nassau County, you know, um, anymore as you think of London being close to Balmoral. You know, Uh but what happened was, so Long Island is about 150 miles long from at tip to tip. So the town I grew up in, College Point, I was on the North Shore. And we had, we had the Matinacock Indians there. You had the 13 nations of the Algonquin tribe. So the short answer to the question is yes, actually the Amityville house on Ocean Avenue, they did find remains of Native Americans. In my hometown, what happened was on Long Island, which was a very fertile place, and prior to World War II, it was still mainly a lot of things out on the island in that area, in Nassau and Suffolk County. A lot of potato farms, a lot of farms, a lot of open fields. Now, if you were a Native American, and you didn't have indoor plumbing, and you didn't have a sewer system, where are you going to hang out and build your property you're going to stay by the water because it's sure. a form of transportation you're getting into boats you're fishing you're going to visit other tribes uh do a little trading you are going to use it for washing and you're probably going to bury your dead there right. but going back to the late 1890s and 1905, there were reports, and I have copies of the newspapers, and in fact, when I was doing my original research when I was at Channel 5 before we went into the House, I went to the Amityville Historical Society. And this is right right after the, the Lutzes and William Weber had done that press conference in late January. So this is early February before it really blew up with the Channel 5 televised reports. And I read these articles, and they were in the little local newspapers at the time, the Rockville Center thing, you know, where they had little gossip columns like, you know, Miss Fanny Mae had a tea party with her friends. And there were little blurbs that said while they were digging in a root cellar and trying to dig out a foundation for a house, they found the remains of several Native Americans in what was long thought to be an Indian burial ground. And one of the the people that they found, they thought, was presumed to be a Native chieftain because he was found standing in an upright position rather than buried horizontally. And according to some Native American tribes, you would bury the person standing up if they were a person of importance in the All drive right. so and that was and so those things were uncovered about eight years apart because there were two separate articles and i have them however interestingly when we were we first aired the initial story with steve bauman myself and the warrens when we went into the house on february 25th 1976. Once that story ran, oh my God, the phone lines lit up, et cetera. I went to go back to the Amityville Historical Society for more research and all of that stuff about the Native American burial ground. All evidence had disappeared. And it wasn't until very recently when a lot of those articles were available on microfiche or online uh-huh. That they came to light again. But for years, for decades, the Amityville Historical Society denied that Indians were buried there. Now, when you talk about a burial ground, it's not like you and I might think of, you know, cemeteries.
2: Right. No, I understand.
4: But yes, they did find That is, that part is is true.
2: Yeah, supposedly, because we have almost the same thing in the Chicagoland area. We have the Potawatomi tribe. Uh, we talk about uh, ley lines and stuff like that on our tours about the Indians, our Native Americans, I'm sorry. Right. Is that um, they talk about how the um, you would recognize if there was a burial ground, if certain um, branches were bent upwards if they were bent upwards, supposedly that was a sign that that was a burial ground or back in the day of when the Native Americans were around. That way you knew what that was. Uh, that's that's something that we've at least been taught here in uh, the Chicagoland area because we have a lot of that. We have uh, a wide thing about uh, the Native Americans of the Potawatomi tribe around here. Now, the other thing is you were talking about earlier that, Um, Ryan DeFeo Jr. would be sloppy about any crime that he would have committed. So I want to bring up a good point. The murders were not sloppy. These murders were not sloppy at all, as in everybody was laying on their stomachs. They were shot. Maybe some people did hear it. Maybe some people didn't hear it. Okay. sometimes people talk about things that they uh, certain places you don't see animals or anything like that. But every now and then you probably do see animals at certain places. So more than likely someone did hear it, but it's 315 in the morning and it's in a large home. And if it was sloppy, why is it that these people, these victims are laying flat on their stomach? It's an amazing. This is where it gets weird if there's one thing that's definitely weird about this whole thing, it's the murder process. They're all mm-hmm. laying on their stomachs. Paul, can you uh, chime in
6: on that? I mean, this is one of many, many theories. You know, I mean, that this can go on forever. Sure. Uh, but this is one that I personally find quite plausible. Is that maybe they did actually wake up. Maybe they did actually hear these horrendously loud noises and they did wake up, maybe they were in shock, you know, at it being so loud. They were, you know, what the hell was that, you know, that didn't have a chance to move? Or the other thing that we could bring into this, it could be either and or, that if somebody was out of bed and moving around, they could have been forced back into that position at gunpoint, you know, so... I'm not not one to debunk or myth-bust things, and that's really not my area. Sure. But when it comes to this, I do feel that there are more practical theories that add up more than this, well, no one heard anything at all. Right. Because without Mm -hmm. speaking to one of them, which, of course, is impossible, we could never really know as such. But I do feel that there are more grounded explanations to explore around as to why, you know, they were all found in the same position. Right. Well, I, mean, I, can, I, can, I can
4: answer. I can answer some of that. Okay, based on the forensics at the time. So first of all, Ronnie DeFeo Sr. was the first one shot. Okay. And so Ronnie uh, Ronnie Jr. came into his into his parents' bedroom, and he shot his father first. The first bullet didn't. Didn't kill him, but you know your body is going to react to that. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna jerk or what have you. So that would have waked him up. So the coroner and the forensic analysis at the time said that the father was starting to get up, but the second shot. This is a high powered rifle.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay.
4: Is. So the second shot, he he wasn't pausing. No. To hit. To hit it. So the father fell back on the bed. Meanwhile, the mother, Louise, is in bed next to her husband. She's obviously going to hear that shot. It's happening literally inches from her. Right. She had attempted, I guess, or was beginning, according to what the coroner and the forensic analysis showed, like raise herself up on her elbow. But again, if it, it happened too quickly bang, bang. He gets the father with two shots. Then he goes to, and he gets the mother with another two shots. And I don't know if people are really familiar with things, uh, you know, who are not familiar with guns, but a high-powered rifle at close range is going to inflict maximum damage on your organs. And it hit it hit them right dead center, literally. Yeah, uh, Louise yeah. got hit in the uh it went through her lungs her liver went up through the breast hit you know etc so they were they were gone right well they were on their stomachs then what is surprising he goes the other three younger kids mark and john were in the room just across the hall in twin beds the youngest boy had a football injury And he had really hurt his leg, so he had to use crutches and a wheelchair. So he would have had a hard time moving. So Ronnie Jr. goes in and dispenses with both brothers and with one shot each.
2: One shot each, center of the back, correct?
4: Um, well, the center of the back was the younger one, and he actually it severed his spine, and he told. The police detective, oh yes, I stood there and I watched, and I watched his leg twitching as he died. Uh. But they died almost immediately. Then he goes in and he gets the 13 year old sister Allison, who's in the room next door. At one point, he told the detective, the police detective, that Dawn, the 18-year-old oldest sister, had heard noises, got out of bed, and said, is that you, Butch? And he says, yeah, Dawn, it's me. It's all. Everything's going to be okay. Go back to bed. That doesn't sound plausible to me. Oh, not at, at all. all. And I, I tell you, you know, so... But there were thoughts that one of the you know that dawn may have waked up and gone back to bed, but again that never that never made sense to me there were also there were also a lot of wild theories that Ronnie defeo senior had been uh killed out in the hallway, and somebody picked him up and brought him back in. Well, the man weighed about two hundred and sixty two hundred and seventy pounds. he was a big man, yes, and so he was he was going to be dead weight. Uh-huh. And not to mention, there would have been a trail of blood. But it, it probably took him no more than 10 or 15 minutes to dispatch with the whole family. Now, what was sloppy about it was not the killing itself, because he did that like an executioner.
2: Pretty precise, yeah.
4: Okay, but it was his alibi. And he also took the time to take a shower. Change his clothes, break down the rifle, put his soiled bloody clothes into a bag, and then he disposed of the rifle back and he told the cops where to find everything. But his alibi didn't hold his alibis didn't hold up for long and he kept changing his story.
2: Yeah, he he at one point he also talks about his sister Dawn
4: being one of the killers.
2: Yeah. And uh then he recanted that. And uh then but then he also said it again. All I know is that he keeps changing his story after he was sent to prison uh for the murders. But he did he said that someone uh, a black figure with the rifle handed him his uh handed him the rifle. And but then he said, No, it was actually Dawn. Am I correct on that?
4: He said so many things, yeah. none of them made any sense. First, his his first thing when he ran into Henry's bar, a local a local bar, help, help, you know. Well, actually he went to uh he went to work the next morning. And he made a big show of trying to call the house. And saying, boy, something something's wrong. I can't get anybody on the phone at my house. Now, why the grandfather or somebody at the office didn't think it was strange that Ronnie Sr. didn't show up for work that day, I don't know. But then he left. So he was telling people at work, gee, I'm getting kind of worried. I can't reach anybody at home. He goes home, allegedly, then runs to Henry's bar and says, help, help. My family's been shot. They're dead or blah, blah, blah. So several of the bar patrons who were acquaintances of him, of Ronnie Jr., went to the house with him. And that's when the phone call was made, the 911 phone call. And originally, the the two guys, two or three guys from the bar who accompanied um, DeFeo Jr. to the house, they didn't know about the extra bodies like Dawn upstairs, et cetera. They thought there were just four dead people. Mm -hmm. So they sort of missed Allison and Dawn. And then of course the police showed up and it was immediately a crime scene and uh, at that point, the families, the DeFeo and the Briganti families were notified and they all took over. Right. There was also a lot made because Ronnie Ronnie Jr. did make the point. Um, first of all, he said it was a mafia hitman that was out to get his family because of jewelry and money his father had in the house. Then and and he was even naming the person. <laughs> okay. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, which and if it's a real mafia hitman, you probably don't want to finger a mafia hitman. No,
2: that'd be oh. a bad idea. <laughs>
4: But, and in fact, the person did, did get wind of it and did come to meet the cops and said, look, I was in Philadelphia <laughs> and was able, was able to prove it. So that's, I'm laughing, but the re- the reason I'm laughing is because his alibis and his lies were so easily refuted.
3: Uh-huh.
4: It took the cops when they were originally had him at the police station for his own protection, but once they started talking to him and his alibis and his stories uh, you know were proved to be flimsy and false, uh-huh. then it didn't take them long to zero in on him as the main suspect uh-huh. and so right. within within thirty hours, you know you had the two detectives and they went in and uh, the one detective was with him for like ten hours and you know, basically got the whole story out of them. And the most truthful thing that I believe Ronnie DeFeo Jr. ever said was when they said to him, why did you do it? Why, Why did you kill your brothers and sisters? And he says, well, it all happened so fast. Once I started, I just couldn't stop. And it should also be mentioned that he had shot up he had been at a friend's house a a woman who was a friend and he had shot up heroin that night he had been drinking he went downstairs and he was watching tv in the basement in the finished basement and then he was smoking some marijuana so that's he had a pretty good drug cocktail going on
2: well all i know is is a drug cocktail going on I, it's just from experience of things that I've done, um, not killing people, of course. Uh, it's it's just or that the uh,
4: drug cocktail part. <laughs> yeah, the drug cocktail part.
2: Not even that, but from people I've met in my professional life, is that when you're influenced on stuff like that, you don't really move very well. Your 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 physical balance is very much off. You don't really you know move very well. So it, there is a question of. Certain things, I, I'm. it's just me just saying that. I, it's just very odd to me, the whole thing of the bodies being the way that they are, uh, him doing heroin and supposedly doing other narcotics, which he is getting influences for things that do open up things to actually the supernatural. I ain't going to lie. Yes,
4: absolutely. I, I would agree with that. But here's the thing. You have somebody like, uh, you don't know what his tolerance was. Sure. And sure if you, okay, so if you and I are taking aspirin because you know we get headaches or you've mm-hmm. got a you've got a nagging pain in your knee or your back, pick one. Um, after a while, you take one aspirin, you take two aspirins, and it's less effective, uh-huh. and your body can build up a tolerance uh-huh. to it. So who knows? Who knows? You're absolutely right. You're what absolutely what right. Who knows? Toler- At that point, he had been doing drugs and alcohol for se- several years. right? Like, I,
2: I've, I've known people who are alcoholics, and that's how they start off their day, and that's the only way they're going to finish their day. And But they seem to get through the whole day just fine. So, yeah, you are correct on that. I have to admit with
4: that. But I, what I will say is, and the best book on this is High Hopes. Mm-hmm. Okay? That's by Gerard Sullivan, who was the prosecutor, and Harvey Aronson, who was a Pulitzer Prize-winning Uh, reporter and editor for New York Newsday. Mm. And the last page of the book that Gerard Sullivan, who had prosecuted the case, uh, the second to last paragraph, um, third to last paragraph, he says, and to me, this is the core of it. This is after almost two years. You know, it's after the trial. It's after all the forensic analysis which was fresh at the time. He says, I still think about the DeFeo case, especially about the children. And I wonder about the questions that were never answered. Did any of the victims wake up? If so, why didn't any of them defend themselves? Why were all six found face down in death? Why didn't anyone hear the shots? Right. So that's the answer to several of the questions that you posed, that Paul asks, et cetera. That was this book came out a year after the murders, a year or two after the murders. Everything was fresh. That tells you, by the way, the coroner, they found no drugs in the body. Right. The bodies were all found face down. There was no evidence of of movement that the bodies had been moved.
2: See, that's so weird. That
4: is there just was, so weird. Why didn't anybody hear the shots? So at the time, that tells you your original question. How is it that nobody heard the shots here? No one came forward. Right. So now everybody afterwards who's now claiming that they heard the shots, I take that with a very large block of salt.
3: <laughs> yeah. Okay.
4: So they know the the body. I I will say when I spoke to the coroner at the time and the coroner's reports did say look the father was you know he he recoiled he recoiled back that's a that's an involuntary reaction to being hit the mother had started to get up because she heard the sound but it was too quick right and she was on her stomach the but why Allison Why Dawn and why Mark were on their stomachs and John, all of them, that's very strange. Why didn't anybody hear the shot? So, But there you have it from the person who had gone over this in the most minute detail in building the case to prosecute Ronnie DeFeo. Sure, sure. And there were some, you know, uh, the other thing that happens when you get to the Lutz part of it, Is people for these were gruesome murders. Yes. Okay. They were these they were shot at close range, and the girls, Allison, who was 13, and Dawn, who was just 18, he got them in the face and the head. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when you saw the crime scene, there was blood splatter and brain matter spattered on the wall. Right. Now the forensics came in. The house was taped off. They did their analysis. They took their pictures. A year later, the house is sold to the Lutzes. Right. The DeFeo and Briganti families understandably did not want those possessions, most of them. I believe Mr. Briganti, Michael Briganti Sr., who was Louise DeFeo's father, he loved his daughter, you know. So it's like Don Corleone with Connie. He wouldn't. Sure, be sure,
2: sure. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone's gonna get it, man.
4: <laughs> exactly. He uh, he had commissioned oil paintings of the family.
3: Yeah.
4: Okay, and he, he they got they got that, but most of the furniture in the house they sold with the house to the Lutzes. Right when <laughs> Kathy Lutz went in there. And Kathy was a very, you know, she was Irish. She was a real, uh, she was a very, very pristine housekeeper. She went in, you know, when the cops left, when the, you know, when the house was sold, nobody had gone in and cleaned that house.
3: Right.
4: Kathy was scraping dried blood and brain matter and other bodily things off. Off the walls and floor, she told me that.
2: Right, that's that, that's. Oh, dear Lord.
4: Well, start start thinking about that. So you've got a situation. If you do believe, for those people who believe in the paranormal, which is going to be a lot of people in your audience,
3: mm-hmm.
4: you've got a kid, Ronnie DeFeo, twenty three, mm-hmm. who's been on drugs. Mm-hmm. His personality. I don't know what his specific. Ology was, but it was not normal.
2: Right. So you go into, after these murders happen, okay, Ryan Defail Jr. goes off to prison, and a year later, the Lutzes come into the new home, They're, at least their new home. Now, it's, it's been my experience on things, whereas when traumatic or dramatic things happen in timelines, you're either going to get a residual haunting that's going to happen, Okay, you got blood, which is a conduit, and you got a whole bunch of uh, of, you, you're right next to water, which is that lake. Is it a, a lake that they were right next to? No,
4: it's not a lake. It's basically you're near the Long Island Sound, and you know the Atlantic Ocean or both near there, but it's an inlet. So it's they call it the Amityville River. The locals call it the creek.
2: Okay, so you have that. You have this traumatic murders that happened. Possibly that these people, their souls, they don't know that they're dead. Yes. When anything exactly. like happens, it's called the ethereal core that, you know, it all of a sudden breaks and all of a sudden your, your soul pops out and you didn't even know that you died. We've had actually a, a case before here in the Chicagoland area where a lady did not know that she was passed on and she kept being seen. So you have that and you probably have a Native American burial ground which could be giving off supernatural energy like we talked about before, ley lines that gives off supernatural activity. So now we welcome in the Lutz family, which is really weird. You have a family that just actually started getting together. You have a man by the name of George Lutz who looks exactly, almost exactly like Ronnie DeFeo Jr. And so we enter in with the Lutz family, and they start getting activity right on the first day. Uh, tell us about that, Laura.
4: Well, the interesting thing there, OK, and I interviewed when I first made contact with the Lutzes was after they, uh, you know, had had that press conference with William Weber, who had been Ronnie DeFeo's third or fourth defense attorney, by the way.
3: <laughs> uh-huh.
4: And he was looking for to get an appeal for Ronnie on the basis of, you know the devil made me do it. That was, he had that thread going on even during the trial. So then you figure a year later, the Lutzes move in, they start having things happen. The Lutzes contacted William Weber ostensibly to find out, well, did Ronnie ever tell you anything about any strange going on goings on there? And here's William Weber, who was a very sharp attorney, okay, and put up a very, pun-pun, spirited defense in Ronnie's right. behalf, right. which was going to, always going to be a losing battle. This is like manna from heaven. He's just been handed a gift, Mr. Weber. So he right away gets this uh, press conference going. And that's really stoked the fires. After that, the Lutzes sort of disappear. But William Weber is still acting as sort of their spokesperson, and in the background, William Weber has, has contacted other news media, cha- Channel Seven, Eyewitness News, which was the ABC affiliate. Yeah, and also George had been going out and contacting um, psychic researchers, paranormal investigators. They didn't; nobody called them that in those days, but. He came upon, uh, there was Raymond Buckland, who had the Buckland Museum for Witchcraft and Magic out in Bayshore, Long Island at the time. He was calling um, the American Institute for Psychical Research with um, uh, several well-known psychics there. He went down to the Duke University, the people at the Dream Lab, and he was really looking to have people come in and investigate this and tell him that he wasn't crazy. So by the time I had gotten in touch with the Lutzes and I wasn't, it was not really clear when the Lutzes and William Weber, DeFeo's attorney had had a parting of the ways, but William Weber was seizing onto this from the very beginning, not just as a means to get his client Ronnie Junior. An appeal, on the grounds that the devil made him do it, which would have been phenomenal at that time because this is just two or three years after the movie The Exorcist came out. Okay. Right. But William Weber sees big dollar signs. Sure, sure. Wow, we can we can get a book. we can get several books out of this. A couple of movies, at least. So when I made contact with the Lutzes by calling the office and you know giving uh, the people who worked for him at uh, he George Lutz was running his family's business, which was a surveying company the William H Parry surveying company which had been in business for a couple of generations he called me at channel 5 on a friday and said can you come out and meet me and my wife at my office on a saturday afternoon i didn't tell anybody at channel 5 what i was doing because i figured they'd try and send somebody with me it may you know it may or may not happen So I'd rather not say anything and just hope I could deliver the goods. I spent five and a half, six hours with them. And the most striking thing, once you got past their demeanor, because George Lutz was really high strung. Okay. He was like a tensile wire. He could have snapped at any time. Kathy was very um, soft. Laid back, delicate. Okay. But George, and they, they, it was really difficult to get them to tell you exactly what happened. And they wouldn't talk about the last day in the house okay. and what exactly had happened. But when I pressed them for details, they started saying, okay, well, we'd hear, you know, noises. Um, George was saying he could never get warm. He always had a fire going. Right. they Their personalities were changing. They woke the kids up at night and um, were making them march around like drill sergeants and he smacked them with you know, a wooden spoon. Uh, Missy, Melissa, the youngest who was five at the time, the daughter. She had an imagined the famous, the now infamous imaginary playmate Jody.
2: Jody the pig.
4: Yeah, but it wasn't just Jody the pig. What she was telling people was it could be, it could take any form it wanted. Right. And unlike the little girl Reagan and the Exorcist, you know, who had the imaginary friend, sure. Jody seemed to be a, a rather benign figure to her. George claimed that he went into the upstairs bedroom one night and saw something with red eyes gleaming at him. Mm -hmm. Kathy said it worked on women differently. And one of the most striking things she said to me was looking in the mirror one day, the bathroom mirror, while she was going to wash her face or put her makeup on. And she said, what was looking back at her was the face of an old hag hers. Sure. Okay. The boys, uh, then they talked about, you know, levitating off the beds, the Lutzes, the boys were, um, saw a spectral figure coming towards them one night, and the boys were in Ronnie DeFeo's bedroom, okay? And what they found, by the way, (laughs) that was never taken out of the house, was was the ammunition.
2: So there was still ammunition left over from the original killing. Hmm.
4: Well, uh, not the original he, there were boxes of ammunition there. Got it. Got it wasn't it. the shell casings from shell the casings. from from the thing. No, they were just so they were just playing with things. Danny in particular, um I guess you know, you had the windows in the house and the window came slammed slammed down upon his hand. Right. And George claimed he went upstairs and he and Kathy were both tugging and trying to get the window up and it just wouldn't budge. Right. And I did see Danny's hand several weeks after this was still bruised and swollen.
2: And how old was he at the time? Was was he about seven or eight at the time?
4: No. Okay. So Melissa, the youngest, was five. Christopher was seven. And Danny had just turned nine.
2: So he is the oldest. Okay.
4: And but when you think about it, to your point about the prior murders, the DeFeo children, the youngest was nine. Then there was a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old, then an 18-year-old, and then Ronnie DeFeo Jr., Sure, the eldest of five, was 23.
3: Right.
4: So the Lutz boys were in roughly the same age within a few years of the DeFeo children. Okay.
2: So let's kind of get into some of the things that were supposedly happening in the home. Uh, the screen door, that famous screen door in the movie. And is I, I think it's been in even in the Ryan Reynolds movie, which I enjoyed as well. It wasn't as good as the original, but that supposedly it rips off the hinges. Am I correct on that? But yeah,
4: that was, that was one of the claims that were, that was made. Mm-hmm. However, I never saw any evidence that the door had been ripped off its hinges. Now, presumably uh, George at the time had said, Oh, well they got things repaired, but he said several things at the time that nobody was able to corroborate. Like he had called the Amityville police for such and such. And, you know, there was no evidence of that, that he had, the door was ripped off the hinges and, you know, I never saw any repair bills. Nobody did, you know? So, all I'm saying is it didn't look like it had been ripped off the hinges. But if it had been, in fact, ripped off the hinges and repaired, there wouldn't be any evidence of it.
2: Okay. Now, George Lutz, he did do a uh, lie detector test, correct?
4: Yes. Both he and Kathy took lie detector tests and they passed.
2: And they passed on those tests. Uh, one of the things uh, you brought in in your, uh, your documentary, uh, My Amityville Horror, you brought Danny in. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, I, I, I truly did. I enjoyed this. I thought it was very interesting. The reason why I think it was interesting is because I still think if there was something going on in there, I think he's still got it. Or he's got a lot of trauma that's still going on in his mind. Uh, going back to that video, the movie that you had, you have a part in there where you go see Lorraine Warren. Yes. They talked to you about this. And she gives her that cross, that's supposed to be a very powerful cross. I forget what it was. Uh,
4: well, was he had there. he had a piece. Of, supposedly, it was a crucifix, but in the back of it, Lorraine had um, a relic, a second or third class relic, which had belonged. Uh, supposedly, it was a piece of wood from the original cross that Christ had been crucified on. Oh. Now, I don't know how right. how a person would be able to verify. Sure. The authenticity of that, but Lorraine, <laughs> Lorraine believed it,
2: right? Right, exactly. But here's the interesting thing is, and I, it's it's just that I pay attention to things, especially when uh, it deals with anything paranormal. Now he's he's kind of like a very uh, strong forward type person, and he goes in there, and he, he he's being okay. He's being a decent person inside the house, but you can see he's a little bit. uh He's agitated little, yeah yeah he's a little agitated thank you thank you he seems a little agitated but the minute that she gives him that cross and he kisses it for that moment you notice in his eyes or he's almost about to cry and he gives it back to him for that moment he had this peaceful look to his face but it was only for that moment i don't know if you if you, if you paid attention to that or not or saw what i saw well, I,
4: I was sitting right next to him well Danny. Right. Danny was always intense, even as a child. I can recall him, and he he always had those ice blue eyes that were like laser beams. I mean, he was the scariest person in there. I had a a friend of mine who sat down to watch it, and she turned it off after five minutes she She said Danny gave her the creeps, but like, yeah, he was very respectful,
2: yes, he was and
4: almost in awe of Lorraine Warren,
2: yes, he was.
4: He also, as far as he has told myself and other people, that he identifies as Catholic. Mm-hmm. So, if you come face to face with one of those things and you do believe, then certainly it makes sense that he would feel a sense of reverence or a sense of uh, calmness could come over him for that minute. Right, but yeah, sure. I mean, Danny was was. Was intense as a child. I can remember uh seeing the Lutzes in 1978 after they had moved to San Diego and being in the house. And I was helping Kathy wash the dishes after dinner. And she would and Danny was helping us. Right. And George came in to the room for something. And I remember him shooting George a look. And it was one of those if looks could kill you'd be dead type of looks. Do think that, never well, liked him.
2: Do you think that George abused the family at all or the children in a physical sense?
4: Well, they said, he said he and Kathy admitted that when they were in the house and their personalities were changing, that they marched the kids around right. like drill sergeants. They yelled at them and they slapped them. Now, when you say physical abuse, Again, we need to put that in the context of the times, where it was very commonplace for children to be spanked. Right? Were they? Were they? Was? Was was he starved, locked in a closet, deprived of food? You know, beaten? No. But uh, abuse takes many forms.
2: Sure, sure, and especially okay. when you're a child, you might perceive something a lot differently than you know as an adult Take for instance when i was a when I was a child, um, my dad uh, remarried a lady and she became my stepma and in my heart of hearts as a child, I disliked this woman, and I believe that everything and anything that she did was wrong to me uh so maybe he misperceived some things uh during his young childhood
4: no, I mean well, no, I think George. Was a taskmaster, mm-hmm. and he—I would say—he had a very, a decidedly different relationship with Christopher and Danny than he had with Melissa, uh-huh. because Melissa, she was five, and she seemed to be, you know, fine. She didn't seem spooked by anything, uh, oh. and certainly his other two daughters with Kathy. George and Kathy had two daughters together, uh, Noel and Gabrielle. They had a good relationship with him.
3: Mm
4: -hmm. His relationship with Danny and Christopher was fraught. And Danny makes no bone. Danny said in the Miami Devil horror documentary that was, you know, produced and, you know, written and directed by Eric Walter. He basically said, I wanted to kill him. I tried to kill him. I was going to hit him over the head with something.
2: Yeah, he, he yeah he he says that in the video. He said, "Wait!" He, and I remember it was at the end of the video. He goes like this: He goes, "Wait till we're done when you turn this off." And he said that to him on that video. And I'm like this: Oh dear Lord, <laughs>
3: he's a very angry man.
4: Yeah. Well, no? yeah. I mean, certainly, and that, what they used, what they used for the still shot, yeah, is the, that close up of Danny and those laser blue eyes.
3: Right, right.
4: And, you know, so I have to ask Paul over in. Um, in the UK, where you hail from, certainly back in the 60s, 70s, you have the tradition of the British boarding schools where the kids got caned and what have you. So I don't know if that still goes on, but certainly I remember even watching the 1966 or 1967 movie with Sidney Poitier, "To Sir with Love. Sydney Portier ends up at this school in the east end of London which is the tough part of town and he's told by the the school administrators that there's no corporal punishment or, uh, uh, allowed and he says we're not allowed to slap them <laughs> <So>
6: again,
4: <laughs> that's that's going back 60 years
6: That's that's how it was here yeah i mean um, I'm for and I'd I can remember you know, a time where misbehavior—you you got a whack, you know, not a punch, you know, yeah. to, to, you know, over and over again. But you'd get a smack across the arm or across the legs or across the backside. That was normal, but not at school. Not not when I was very very young. Yeah, but yeah, I, I do know what you're saying, and this is what I've always thought myself. And I'd say I don't mean any disrespect to Daniel or Christopher when I say this. A lot of I do feel a lot of what they described about George, maybe the mother as well, a little bit, you know. I think that was quite normal at the time.
4: <laughs> you well, know, no, if, I mean certainly George, you put these personalities in. George and Danny, who, who even as a not and don't get me wrong, Danny was an innocent. Okay, but he was an intense personality. So I think coming in to the to the DeFeo residence, what was the DeFeo house? A scant year after the sextuple murders, very violent murders, and you've got a personality like George, who's very high-strung. You've got a child like Danny, who's intense. If you believe in the supernatural, then you say, hey, look, this is a recipe right. for something. It's to happen. Storm.
2: Yeah, it's a perfect storm for something like this. You have a family that uh, you, the first of the fail family is a dysfunctional family. And this young kid, Ray De, uh, Ron DeFail Jr., has murder on his mind. And then the murders himself. Happen, and there's a lingering thing of energy that's going on possibly inside this house. Then you bring in a family that's almost kind of similar uh, by the way they look and this and that, and it, it's just odd. And then you have a little dysfunction inside this family. Could it continue the energy going? And that maybe the energy from the murders is feeding off of it. I don't know. Uh, it's it, I I do believe that something is definitely going on with this place. Um, but I don't really, really, um, know the whole story of how far and how deep it truly is. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is such a deep subject, Amityville, that we're going to have to do a part two to this. So feel free and click into the link below so you can continue on to hear these great true stories of Amityville with Laura and Paul.
3: Boo.
1: This concludes part one of our Amityville podcast. Be sure to catch part two of this episode as we continue discussing Amityville.